Well, good morning. <clears throat> For some of you who don't know me, you probably are looking and thinking that I look just like George Clooney. I'm not George Clooney. <laughs> uh, but I uh, just want to make sure you not misun. Take your Bibles and uh, or your Bible app and turn to the Gospel of Mark, chapter 11. If you don't have that with you, you'll be able to see it on the screen. So this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to begin with the way that I'm going to end. Does that, does that make sense? So I'm going to begin by the way that I'm going to end. And then, uh, as you will see, we'll just wrap up with this once again. There was two uh, researchers by the name of William Miller and Stephen Rolnick. And they were researchers, and they looked into those who were facing substance abuse issues and their perception of how much of a need that they had. Were they really in need, or were they just being forced into treatment uh, because of family, or because of their work, or because of the legal system, things of this nature? And what they discovered is that so many in the, uh, who were in that situation who had a substance abuse issue that was problematic, that these individuals didn't recognize the problem. They just didn't see it. What they saw was that if the issues around them could be addressed, then they could continue on in, their, in, in the way of life. They could continue on in their addiction. I remember vividly having a conversation with a gentleman who was battling cocaine and I, I, well, I was sitting down with him, this is about our third time together, and then finally his head popped up and he looked at me and he goes, wait, 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 wait. You mean I've got to stop using cocaine? And I go, yeah. And he goes, oh, well, that's not why I'm here. I just don't want it to be a problem. <laughs> so the, the thing is, is that these individuals, they felt that if they could get the issues better, then they wouldn't have to worry about the real problem that was causing deep carnage in their family and in their life and things of this nature. I find a similar uh, you know, parallel with the body of Christ is that we want God to deal with our issues, a difficult family situation, poor relationship, struggle financially, health issues, these kind of things, things that are putting pressure upon us but we really sometimes don't see the real spiritual issue. We, we, do, we just don't see it. We're like the frog in the kettle. Is that we see the issues that are irritating us, but we don't recognize the underlying spiritual point. We have self-justification. We can use the phrase, we look at our issues with, with, uh, uh, with rose-colored glasses. And so what happens, instead of us addressing the spiritual issues... We want only to focus upon the outside issues instead of really about us. So that's the reason why the title of the message is this, The Power of Jesus to Free You from Yourself. It's found in Mark chapter 11, verses 1 through 4, and then 7 through 17. I'm going to read out the New International Version. As they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethpage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and just as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there, which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it. Now look at verse 7. When they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks over it, he said on it, many people spread their cloaks on the road, while others spread branches they had cut in the fields. Those who went ahead of those who followed shouted, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming of the kingdom of David. 
Hosanna in the highest. Jesus entered Jerusalem, went into the temple courts, he looked around, and then, because it was late, he went out to Bethany and to the twelve. The next day they were leaving Bethany, Jesus was hungry. Seeing in the distance a fig tree and leaf, he went to find out if it had any fruit. When he reached it, he found nothing but leaves, because it was not even not the season for figs. Then he said to the tree, may no one ever eat fruit from you again, and his disciples heard him say it. <laughs> no, he didn't mumble it, he said it out loud. On reaching Jerusalem, Jesus entered the temple courts, began driving out those who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves and would not allow anyone to carry merchandise through the temple courts. That's pretty, pretty aggressive, you know. And as he taught them, he said, it is not written, is it not written, my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. I'd like to ask you, if you would, in just a moment, I'm going to ask you to place your hand on your heart. I'm going to ask you to pray for two things. Did not listen to me pray, but I'd like for you to pray. One is, Holy Spirit, I just ask you to help me focus that I would hear what you have for me, that I would not be distracted. I wouldn't lose that. I'd not that I'm not trying to do something that would benefit me. I'm saying for you, that you would hear what God has for you. And then secondly, I want you to pray that you would have your heart open to what God has for you. You got it? Place your hand on your heart. Father, in the name of Jesus, now pray with me, would you? Father, in the name of Jesus, I ask the Holy Spirit to come and fill this place as it already is. Just fill this place. But help us to focus, oh God, that we would not be distracted and, not miss, and we would miss what you have for us today. I pray, Father, that the people of God would reconnect with this week of Passover and these events that are absolutely unbelievable. Thank you, Father, for that. I pray, God, that our hearts would be open, that we would hear from you, and that, Father, God, we would respond to you. In Christ's name I pray it, amen and amen. Well, we're beginning, this passage is kicking off kind of the week of Passover. It has three points in this passage of Scripture. First of all, there's the triumphal entry of Jerusalem. Secondly, it's the cleansing of the temple. Thirdly, is the cursing of the fig tree. And if you were going to write those out, you would not put them together in the same passages, you know. You would think, okay, these are about five days apart. But they're literally together. They're in, in this. So the very first one is the triumphal entry of Jesus. That's the first one. Jesus He's coming into this area, he's riding in, and there is this triumphal celebration that is fitting for a conquering king. It'd be very common for people to cut palm branches, and they're shouting, and they're doing all this. There's a lot of pageantry there. There's a lot of, there's a lot of stuff. It seems like Disney would have taken that and did a production of, you know, a high school musical or something like that. You know, everybody doing all this stuff and dancing together. But, you know, it, it was very, it was not common for conquering kings to do that. But they would ride in upon a war horse, a stallion. But Jesus did something that was absolutely almost weird. He rode in, not like a king, but a child. He did just the opposite of what someone would expect. The Greek word there could be translated as small pony or a donkey. Because donkeys were far more prevalent, it was probably, that's the reason why we 
believe it's that, and also the fulfillment of the, uh, the prophecy by Zechariah. But Jesus rides in, and as he's riding in, those around clearly understood that he was fulfilling Zechariah 9, verse 9. It says this, Rejoice greatly, daughter Zion. Shout, daughter of Jerusalem. See your king comes to you righteous and victorious, lowly, riding on a donkey, a colt, a foal of a donkey. Here, Jesus comes in and does something that is almost an oxymoron. You know, he, it's still, he, he has, the, he has the, the miraculous power to prove that he is a king. He's got the evidence there, but yet he rides in humble and meek and lowly. Jonathan Edwards, he wrote a, a sermon called The Excellency of Christ. It's also a book. It was in the 1700s. And Jonathan Edwards looked at this, and he based it upon a passage in Revelation chapter 5, verses 5 and 6, where it says, Then one of the elders said to me, Do not weep. See, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has triumphed. He is able to open the scroll and its seven seals. Then I saw a lamb. He says, I, I look for a lion, and I see a lamb. But not only that looking as it had been slain, standing at the center of the throne. Majesty, power. Majesty, no. Majesty, meekness. He does just the opposite. In fact, Edward says in his sermon this, and, I, and if you don't mind, I'd like to just read this to you. He says, the lion excels in strength and in majesty of appearance and voice. A lamb excels in meekness and in sacrifice for humans for human clothing and food. But Jesus Christ is both. The diverse excellencies of both lion and lamb are wonderfully met in him. Indeed, there is in Christ Jesus a conjunction of truly diverse excellencies as would be utterly incompatible in the same subject. So there do meet in Christ infinite highness and infinite accessibility. Infinite justice in infinite grace, infinite glory, yet infinite humility, infinite majesty, and infinite transcendent meekness, absolute sovereignty, yet perfect submission, infinite all-sufficiency in himself, yet true independence on God. He is a lion. He is a lamb. He is a rock. He is a pearl. He's a mighty captain. He's a tender lover. He's a fragile flower. He's a mighty tree of life. You say, well, Mark, listen, that, that's okay, I got it. But what does that have to do with me? Well, hang on. We're going to show you. The second one is the cleansing of the temple. It's found in verse 15. And there, Jesus comes and he walks into this area. The temple mount is very large. And the, the largest space in the temple mount is the court of the Gentiles. So the Greek word there is nations, meaning the court. That is the only place of which non-Jews could go to. And there, in that space, was thousands of people. Hundreds of tables, pens with animals herded together, tables with individuals exchanging money. And there is in the midst of all that, and Jesus comes in and starts ripping the place apart. He's turning over the tables. What's the deal about the money changers? 
Real simple. If you were a Greek, then you had coins or currency from Greece. But only thing that was accepted was the temple currency. So the money changers would take your Greek coins, take a little percentage, and give you other coins that was acceptable. And so now... There, we see all of this taking place. Josephus, the historian, he said in a week's time, there was over 200, get this, 255,000 lambs sold and bought during that week of Passover. Wow, it's massive, massive. And Jesus comes in and he starts throwing things over. He starts destroying it. And you can imagine, there's some individuals who are very, very angry because they're making money. They're making a lot of money. And he's now, they're scampering for their coins. They're trying to herd back their animals. They're trying to capture the doves that he released and all this. And Jesus declares Sometimes we think it a little passive, but I think it was very loud. He said, my house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations. Everybody in the room stopped because what he did was not what they expected. Remember, they heralded him in the triumphal entry as the one who was going to bring back David's kingdom. In other words, they were going to rule and not be ruled. They were going to be the rulers. And Jesus comes and he says to them, you are wrong. This is a house of prayer for all nations. Why was that a shock? It's because most of the individuals believed that the Messiah would purge all foreigners. He would kick out everybody and leave all, only the Jews there. And then secondly, secondly, he basically was saying that the animal sacrifice system that had been in place for centuries was no longer valid. Okay, now listen, that may not rock your world, but it rocked their world. It turned them upside down. And they were going, what in the world? It's real, it's, it's, it's not hard to figure out, but stick with me. It goes all the way back to the tabernacle in the temple. And the tabernacle in the temple started back at the Garden of Eden. Because the Garden of Eden was a space, was an area that was a sanctuary that had the presence of God there. The Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit dwelled there. And there, in that presence of God, in that Garden of Eden... There was no decay. There was no death. There was no brokenness. There was, there was none of that because it couldn't coexist with the presence of God. What was there? Flourishing and fulfillment and blessing. But in the midst of that Garden of Eden, during that time, humanity decided that they wanted to center their lives on something else besides God, besides His presence. They wanted to pursue after, well, same things we have a tendency to pursue after. They wanted power and status and comfort and family, even race, nationality, all of these things. And whenever that happens, whenever you put that in the center instead of the presence of God, then guess what? You lose the presence of God. And so, Adam and Eve, you remember the story. Genesis 3, 24, they're driven out of the presence of God. They look over their shoulder as they're exiting, and they look over their shoulder, and they see an angel there with a flaming sword going back and forth, meaning no one could pass by it. What is that sword? It's the eternal justice of God. It's saying that you cannot come back into the presence of God until you pass underneath the sword. 
And you can't do it without it. It will not happen. Some of you uh, heard a phenomenal testimony of the fact of individuals who have been touched by criminal behavior, crime that just came to your doorstep and just just encroached upon you. It, it, It victimized you. It did all these things. Can you imagine going to a trial and standing there next to the one who's the perpetrator of the crime and the judge going, okay, I got to make a decision. And the perpetrator goes, hey, I'll tell you what, judge, let's just, let's just not worry about this. In fact, to be honest with you, I'm sorry. And that should be good enough. And I'll tell you what, I'll go, you go, everybody's good. We would be appalled by that. We would be absolutely incensed. We would say, that's injustice, not justice. And what happens here is that you've got to understand that so many times we want to say to God, God, listen, I'm, well, I'm okay. I, I'm trying my best. You've just got to understand that I'm just, I'm just trying to do it. And God goes, hang on. There's a sword of eternal justice. And you've got to deal with that. So let's go on. From the, from the garden, now we're to where the temple's built, Solomon's temple's built. It's a beautiful building. It's unbelievable in size and dimensions. But inside, there was a veil, a, a thick veil, a woven veil. And behind that veil was a, a room that was in the shape of a cube. And there, you, you know what it is, the Ark of the Covenant. But it was also where the presence of God was. But there was a separation. That veil would not allow you to go into the presence of God, except once a year. Once a year, the high priest, would, he would go in on Yom Kippur, and he would go in, and he would make a blood sacrifice upon the, uh, the Ark of the Covenant in behalf of the nation of Israel. But they would have to tie a rope to his ankle in case he died there in the presence of God. They could pull him out and remove him. But in the midst of all that, in the midst of all that stuff, in the midst of the eternal justice of God, the prophets, Zechariah and these others, they're prophesying that the glory of God, the presence of God, would cover this earth, the entire earth, like the waters cover the bottom of the sea, bottom of the ground. He is saying that the glory of God would be available for all, for everyone. And there, there, that. You're going, but how? Who's going to deal with the eternal justice of God? Who's going to deal with the sword? What's going to happen to it? Well, we find in the book of Revelation, John Revelator, he comes to the throne of the universe. He comes to the centerpiece of all that there is, the place of absolute authority. And he does not see a lion. He sees a slaughtered lamb. He sees a lamb. That Jesus Christ, who, who falls underneath the sword of God's eternal justice, he literally is smitten by this sword on our behalf. But in the same time that it is smitten, it's smiting him, he is smiting it. It is broken. It says in Mark chapter 15 that in, it, it, whenever Jesus dies, instantaneously from the top to the bottom, the veil of that temple that separates into the Holy of Holies is severed. And now we have access unto the Father. We have access unto the presence of God. More than that, the presence of God comes into us. 
We have it inside of us. We are dwelling in that presence of God. Some of you um, might know the name, but it's Scott Peck. He's a psychiatrist. He's written a number of books, and I'm sure you're going, yeah, I don't think I'll be reading those anytime soon. That's okay. That's fine. But he's, he's not a believer at all, and, but he has in many of his books, he, he wrestles with the whole issue of faith and evil, you know, religion, how to deal with all that kind of stuff. In one of his books, he asks the question, how do you defeat evil? How do you defeat it? This is his answer. I don't really understand it, but I do know that whenever you see evil defeated, somebody has to sacrifice. Oh, that's strong. And then, surprisingly, he quotes C.S. Lewis. And C.S. Lewis says, When a willing victim who has committed no treachery is killed in a traitor's stead, the table will crack, the death itself will start working backwards. Death itself will start working backwards. That's exactly what happened here. And the thing is, the power of, the, of Jesus Christ that comes into your life through the power of the Holy Spirit is that presence of God that is rejuvenating in you and it's taking you back and it's renewing you. Whenever Jesus returns as Messiah, he's going to make this planet all new. We will no longer have to worry about pollution and all the global warming of how that we're destroying this planet. He's going to renew it because nature will jump in joy. But let me say this, you can jump in joy now because you have Christ within you. That's the joy of God. You've got to understand that. But hang on, i got one more. It's cursing the fig tree. Cursing the fig tree is, is found in verses 13 through 14. It's, it's in between verses, well, duh, between 11 and 15. <laughs> but you've got to remember what happens is the triumphal entry. And then what is 15, you know, he's cleansing, he's, push, you know, he's pushing everybody out. In the midst of this, here's the cursing of the fig tree. And be honest with you, whenever I first read this, when I first read the cursing of the fig tree, I was thinking, whoa. Uh, he was having a bad day. <laughs> uh, you know, I guess he was kind of working out a little bit of misguided frustration there, and he said, okay, tree, you get it. Because, you know, he walks up this tree, has leaves on it, doesn't see fruit, and then he goes, you're done. Well, you've got to understand that he wasn't dealing with a fig tree. He was dealing with you and me. He was dealing with, he was dealing with Mark Northcutt is what he was dealing with. It's found here, seeing in the distance a fig tree and leaf, he went to find out if it had any fruit. When he reached it, he found nothing but leaves because it was not the season for figs. Then he said to the tree, no one will ever eat fruit from you again. So let me give you a little context. Whenever, uh, after a time of winter and dormancy, whenever the tree started uh, springing leaves again, there would be little nodules that would come before the figs would actually start bearing. And those little nodules were very tasty, and it was common for travelers. As they was walking along, they would go and they would pick these little nodules out and pop them, you know, kind of like seeds or pumpkin seeds or something like that. They were quite tasty. And Jesus comes to this, and he says uh, he was looking for these little nodules, but then he recognized that there was not there, any there. And he quickly deduced that there was something going on, either that the tree was diseased or the tree was dying. Didn't have fruit. It wasn't there. 
And he's, he's saying here, when he confronts us with this, he's using this as a parable for our lives. And he says simply, I've given you life in me. I've given you the same power that literally shook mountains, that, that just the mere presence of God would cause instantaneous death. And that same power that is within you, if it's not within you, why is it not manifesting in you? And he simply, he simply, he simplifies it by saying this, is your character being changed? Is your character being, is it being reborn or are you basically still the same? There, there's been countless studies and, and research has seen it so many times of individuals of how much progress they make from the time that they accept Jesus. Are they moving into the image of God and the image of Christ? Are they basically the same? It's sad to say, and, and, and I really don't even want to give you the numbers because it is sad to say that the majority in the Western church here in America, that at the point of conversion, that there is not a substantial or at least a measurable change in their lives. They're, they kind of morally clean up, have a different circle of friends, they have different patterns, but as far as their character, their inner person, the way of which that they operate and think and function, there's not. You've got to remember, whenever Christ came to this earth, he did not come just to make your life uh, tolerable until. He came for the purpose of bringing that Garden of Eden rejuvenation into your life personally. That you become an example of the presence of God. That your life has that. So what am I trying to say? I'm, I'm trying to say that God's wanting to rejuvenate your character. So what are some illustrations? I, I, I'll make these simple. By the way, do you know you get bonus points for coming to church on rainy days? Do you know that? You know, I, I, I don't want to say this to where Pastor Chris can hear it, but I think we ought to do a 25% off your tithe thing, you know, or something like that, you know. And, uh, you know, but, but since you're here, I might as well just go ahead. But the, the point is, is that if, if, you're an, if you're an anxious person, if you, if you have issues with anxiety, are you seeing a change in that? Are people around you? Is your family, your friends, your coworkers, those who you are associated with, are they seeing a change in that? If you're a depressed person, are, you, are people around you seeing a change in that? If you're an angry person, are people seeing a change in that? Or, or if you're a fearful person, a self-centered person, a depressed person, a self-hating person, a self-grandizing person, are people seeing a change in you? Are they seeing that? Or is it basically just kind of the same? He's saying simply that the radical regeneration is not something that is just for the select 2% of Christians who are really on top, who are really up there, you know, and I can't do that. I'm not one of those 2%ers. That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about you. Are you, are you seeing the regeneration of your character, or is it basically the same? You know, the thing we need to understand is that, that we should not expect anything less than. So you say, well, 
okay, Mark, all right, you got you. I'm with you a little bit, <laughs> not all the way. But how do I know if God's regenerating me? How do I know? Jonathan Edwards, at the end of his message, The Excellency of Christ, he said this. He says, the combining of traits that would not ordinarily see combined in one person will be reproduced in you. The combining of traits that would not be seen in one person, ordinary person, would be combined in you. He's saying that you would not just be a, a nicer person or that you kind of, you know, clean up your language a little bit or that, you know, you, you, you don't chew and you don't smoke and you don't chew and you don't go with girls who do and all that kind of stuff. He is saying to you, is Christ being reproduced in you in character traits that would normally not be together? Uh, so how, how can I illustrate this? And, and I'll, I promise I'm not taking much longer. You know, we have extroverts and introverts. We have thinkers and feelers. We have people who are very decisive. We have people who are more process thinkers like myself. And we have people who, who have basically are presupposed to one particular trait more than the other. And that's all right. That's fine. You know, you've had Myers-Briggs, you've had Strength Finder tests, all those kind of things that identifies those things in you. But is it possible that you could even think that Jesus Christ would want to bring to within you those areas that are muddy, those things that are droopy, those things that are, that are uh, less than desirable, that God would be able to take those things that are strength and the things that you normally don't gravitate to and put those together in your life? Is it possible for you to think that you could also experience humility and majesty, meekness and power and weakness? Do you think you could do that? Could you be the person who is always quick to say something to be also the one who would be slow to speech and give wisdom? Can you do that? The answer is absolutely yes, through the power of the regeneration of Jesus Christ. If you're looking upon yourself to do it, let me just break the news to you now. You ain't got it. It's not possible, but through Jesus, it is possible. It's possible for you to see the fact that you can be radically loved in spite of the fact that you are flawed and inconsistent. You can be transformed from a person who has weaknesses to a person who is filled with the righteousness of God. You say, well, Oh, Mark, you, you, you're making my head spin now. I, I'm not too sure that's at my level. I'm just trying to make a living, I'm trying to raise a family. I'm trying to pay my taxes for the 12th time. I'm trying to do all. I, you're, you're trying to say that I need more? I'm trying to say to you that for you to be able to see the regeneration of Christ, you've got to move God from the edges to the center. You've got to move him from the time you call upon him whenever there's trouble and there's difficulty to the part whenever it's a part it's a centerpiece. It, let me give you an illustration. It would be like having a chair, a throne chair in your life. And you've got it stacked up with career and obligations and duties and desires and struggles and all these kind of things. And you clear out all those boxes. You move them out and you say, Jesus, I want you to sit in the throne of my chair. I want you to be the center of it. That's what we're talking about here. What I'm saying to you is to know that we are humbled and, and literally transformed, not within ourselves, but by the power of the gospel. By the power of the gospel. 
by the power of the gospel that can transpose you into someone you can never be in yourself. I have a good friend of mine. His name is Kevin. He's an individual who does not have uh, extensive education. In fact, uh, struggled uh, in school. He's a carpenter by trade. He doesn't own his own business. He's a carpenter. He, he works hard. He raises his family. He's done a marvelous job. But Kevin is one of the wisest individuals I personally know because he has allowed Christ to regenerate within him. And now there's aspects of him that could never be done by himself that come together, traits that would normally not be associated. You think wisdom has to be highly educated. But no, that's what God wants to do in you. He's wanting to take you and make you. Now listen, without the gospel, Without doing it upon Christ, and you kind of pull up by your own bootstraps, and you you know, kind of, I'm a self-paid person, and I've, I'm disciplined and all that. Yeah, yeah, you can do that. And you can honestly have confidence in yourself, and you can have a little bit of kind of, you know, yeah, kind of a little swagger with that. But the problem is you will never have the, the humbleness and the compassion of individuals who do struggle. The tendency would be, hey, listen, if you'd do what I'd say, you wouldn't be in that position. We have a tendency to lean into that versus, the, what about the other side of the coin? What if you sense in your standards that you are subpar? You're the C student. You're, you're, you're there, you're not horrible, but you're not there. And you're constantly looking at that. Well, you, yeah, you'll be humble to others. You will be, you know, you receptive to those who are going through struggles, but you would never have the glorious expectation of what God can do. We call it faith. You will never have that because it's always just beneath. But through the power of the gospel, you can have those. And they come together. Jesus was always right at every situation. When he needed to be a lion, he was there. When he needed to be a lamb, he was there. When he needed to confront the Pharisees, whenever he needed to have a tender hand to the prostitute who was being accused, he was right there, and God can do that in you. And you don't have to be of an age to make that. It's the regeneration of Christ within you. You see? So what am I, what am I trying to say? I'm trying to say to you, that it is an offense to think that the one who gave himself completely for you would accept anything less than all of you. You say, I've never even thought about that possibility. I, I, to be honest with you, I just thought it's too high of a standard for me. Then the only thing I can ask of you is this. Come to the Lord like a lamb and he will defend you like a lion. He will defend you like a lion against hell. He will defend you like a lion against uh, Satan. He will defend you like a lion against the efforts of the spirit of Antichrist. He will defend you like a lion. But you have to come to him like a lamb. You say, well, okay, then give me the 12 steps. I'm not, there's not 12 steps. It's called surrender. It's called whenever you come to the Lord and you say, I acknowledge one thing. I don't have it, but I know that you want to birth within me something that I would never be able to do in myself. That's the gospel. You see? So now, let's come back. Ready? Let's go back to the beginning again. 
two researchers by the name of William uh, Miller and, and Stephen Roddick. He, they did a study and they found those who had substance abuse problems that they said to themselves, I really don't have that bad of a problem. If I can just get rid of the issues of life, then I can still maintain my addiction. I can still maintain my, my substance abuse, but it's really not that bad. He, in their study, they realized that these individuals never perceived accurately the problems that was being caused. They were like the frog in the kettle. The problems were increasing, but they were totally oblivious to it. Sometimes in the things of God, we do the same thing, don't we? You know what? Hey, I am what I am. God, you just got to help me with the way that I am. God say, no, that's not what I want. What I want is to rejuvenate you and to bring into you aspects which you could never do in yourself. Things of which that would bring balance and glory to God. So you ready? Are you ready to be honest with the Lord and come to him as a lamb and say, Father, I acknowledge that I've kept you on the outside pretty much, even though that I, I listen, I'm not trying to tell you, don't be a part of, of this church. We need you a part of this church. But what I'm saying is don't let you get lost in the forest and forget about looking at the trees. God's warning you to say, Father, open my eyes that I would see my heart as you see it. Open my eyes that I would not be self-deceived and looking upon myself in, with self-justification and saying, just like these who are battling addiction, I'm not that bad. Let me see truly. And Father, what I want you to do is I want you to change me. I want you to come in and bring two things that would be totally opposite into my life to bring balance in every situation to glorify you that I would be the living temple of your glory. That's what I'm asking. So here's what we're going to do. We're just going to take a moment here at this time to give you an opportunity to say it personally to the Lord. Not to me, not to others, but to the Lord. One of the things that I really struggle with in the busyness that we have here in America now is that we don't really take time. We don't, we don't, you know, we compress time and we need it done quickly. And so there are so many times whenever we need to pray through a situation versus just be through praying. And this is one of them where you need to say, Lord, I, I need you to open my eyes. I need to see truthfully, but I also know that whenever I do, that you'll come in and you will rejuvenate those areas of which that are weak or droopy or less than. You'll free me from me.